Section 8 of On Benefits. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Vandervis. On Benefits by Seneca. Translated by Aubrey Stewart. Book 3. Chapters 18 to 28. Chapter 18. It has, however, been doubted by Hecaton and some other writers whether a slave can bestow a benefit upon his master. Some distinguish between benefits, duties, and services, calling those things benefits which are bestowed by a stranger, that is, by one who could discontinue them without blame, while duties are performed by our children, our wives, and those whom relationship prompts and orders to afford us help. And thirdly, Services are performed by slaves, whose position is such that nothing which they do for their masters can give them any claims upon him. Besides this, he who affirms that a slave does not sometimes confer a benefit upon his master is ignorant of the rights of man. For the question is, not what the station in life of the giver may be, but what his intentions are. The path of virtue is closed to no one, it lies open to all. It admits and invites all, whether they be freeborn men, slaves or freedmen, kings or exiles. It requires no qualifications of family or of property. It is satisfied with a mere man. What indeed should we have to trust to for defense against sudden misfortunes? What could a noble mind promise to itself to keep unshaken if virtue could be lost together with prosperity? If a slave cannot confer a benefit upon his master, then no subject can confer a benefit upon his king, and no soldier upon his general. For so long as the man is subject to supreme authority, the form of authority can make no difference. If main force or the fear of death and torture can prevent a slave from gaining any title to his master's gratitude, they will also prevent the subjects of a king or the soldiers of a general from doing so. For the same things may happen to either of those classes of men, though under different names. Yet men do bestow benefits upon their kings and their generals. Therefore, slaves can bestow benefits upon their masters. A slave can be just, brave, magnanimous. He can therefore bestow a benefit, for this is also part of a virtuous man. So true is it that slaves can bestow benefits upon their masters, that the masters have often owed their lives to them. Chapter 19. There is no doubt that a slave can bestow a benefit upon anyone. Why then, not upon his master? Because, it is argued, he cannot become his master's creditor if he gives him money. If this be not so, he daily lays his master under an obligation to him. He attends him when on a journey, he nurses him when sick, he works most laboriously at the cultivation of his estate, Yet all of these, which would be called benefits if done for us by anyone else, are merely called service when done by a slave. A benefit is that which someone bestows who has the option of withholding it. Now a slave has no power to refuse, so he does not afford us his help, but obeys our orders, and cannot boast of having done what he could not leave undone. Even under these conditions I shall win the day, and will place a slave in such positions that for many purposes he will be free. In the meanwhile, tell me, if I give you an instance of a slave fighting for his master's safety without regard to himself, 
pierced through with wounds, yet spending the last drops of his blood and gaining time for his master to escape by the sacrifice of his life. Will you say that this man did not bestow a benefit upon his master because he was a slave? If I give an instance of one who could not be bribed to betray his master's secrets by any of the offers of a tyrant, who was not terrified by any threats nor overpowered by any tortures, but who, as far as he was able, placed his questioners upon a wrong scent and paid for his loyalty with his life? Will you say that this man did not confer a benefit upon his master because he was a slave? Consider, rather, whether an example of virtue in a slave be not all the greater because it is rarer than in freemen, and whether it be not all the more gratifying that, although to be commanded is odious and all submission to authority is irksome, yet in some particular cases love for a master has been more powerful than men's general dislike to servitude. A benefit does not, therefore, cease to be a benefit because it is bestowed by a slave, but is all the greater on that account, because not even slavery could restrain him from bestowing it. Chapter 20 It is a mistake to imagine that slavery pervades a man's whole being. The better part of him is exempt from it. The body indeed is subjected and in the power of a master, but the mind is independent, and indeed is so free and wild, that it cannot be restrained even by this prison of the body, wherein it is confined, from following its own impulses, dealing with gigantic designs, and soaring into the infinite, accompanied by all the host of heaven. It is therefore only the body which misfortune hands over to a master, and which he buys and sells. This inward part cannot be transferred as a chattel. Whatever comes from this is free. Indeed, we are not allowed to order all things to be done, nor are slaves compelled to obey us in all things. They will not carry out treasonable orders or lend their hands to an act of crime. Chapter 21 There are some things which the law neither enjoins nor forbids. It is in these that a slave finds the means of bestowing benefits. As long as we only receive what is generally demanded from a slave, that is, mere service, when more is given than a slave need afford us, it is a benefit. As soon as what he does begins to partake of the affection of a friend, it can no longer be called service. There are certain things with which a master is bound to provide his slave, such as food and clothing. No one calls this a benefit, but supposing that he indulges his slave, educating him above his station, teaching him arts which freeborn men learn, that is a benefit. The converse is true in the case of the slave. Anything which goes beyond the rules of a slave's duty, which is done of his own free will, and not in obedience to orders, is a benefit, provided it be of sufficient importance to be called by such a name if bestowed by any other person. Chapter 22 It has pleased Chrysippus to define a slave as a hireling for life. Just as a hireling bestows a benefit when he does more than he engaged himself to do, so when a slave's love for his master raises him above his condition and urges him to do something noble, something which would be a credit even to men more fortunate by birth, he surpasses the hopes of his master and is a benefit found in the house. Do you think it is just that we should be angry with our slaves when they do less than their duty, and that we should not be grateful to them when they do more? Do you wish to know when the service is not a benefit? When the question can be asked, what if he had refused to do it? When he does that which he might have refused to do, we must praise his goodwill. 
Benefits and wrongs are opposites. A slave can bestow a benefit upon his master if he can receive a wrong from his master. Now an official has been appointed to hear complaints of the wrongs done by masters to their slaves, whose duty it is to restrain cruelty and lust, or avarice in providing them with the necessaries of life. What follows, then? Is it the master who receives a benefit from his slave? Nay, rather it is a man who receives it from another. Lastly, he did all that lay in his power. He bestowed a benefit upon his master. It lies in your power to receive or not receive it from a slave. Yet who is so exalted that fortune may not make him need the aid of even the lowliest? Chapter 23 I shall now quote a number of instances of benefits, not all alike, some even contradictory. Some slaves have given their master life, some death have saved him when perishing, or, as if that were not enough, have saved him by their own death. Others have helped their master die, some having saved his life by stratagem. Claudius Quadrigarius tells us in the 18th book of his Annals that when Grumentum was besieged and had been reduced to the greatest straits, two slaves deserted to the enemy and did valuable service. Afterwards, when the city was taken and the victors were rushing wildly in every direction, they ran before everyone else along the streets, which they well knew, to the house in which they had been slaves, and drove their mistress before them. When asked who she might be, they answered that she was their mistress, and a most cruel one, and that they were leading her away for punishment. They led her outside the walls, and concealed her with the greatest care until the fighting was over. Then, as the soldiery, satisfied with the sack of the city, quickly resumed the manners of Romans, they also returned to their own countrymen and themselves restored their mistress to them. She manumitted each of them on the spot and was not ashamed to receive her life from men over whom she held the power of life and death. She might indeed especially congratulate herself upon this, for had she been saved otherwise, she would merely have received a common and hackneyed piece of kindness whereas by being saved as she was, she became a glorious legend and an example to two cities. In the confusion of the captured city, when everyone was thinking only of his own safety, all deserted her except these deserters. But they, that they might prove what had been their intentions in effecting that desertion, deserted again from the victors to the captive, wearing the masks of unnatural murderers. They thought, and this was the greatest part of the service which they rendered. They were content to seem to have murdered their mistress, if thereby their mistress might be saved from murder. Believe me, it is a mark of no slavish soul to purchase a noble deed by the semblance of crime. When Vettius, the praetor of the Marci, was being led into the presence of the Roman general, his slave snatched a sword from the soldier who was dragging him along and first slew his master. Then he said, It is now time for me to look to myself. I have already set my master free. And with those words transfixed himself with one blow. Can you tell me of anyone who saved his master more gloriously? Chapter 24 When Caesar was besieging Corfinium, Domitus, who was shut up in the city, ordered a slave of his own, who was also a physician, to give him poison. Observing the man's hesitation, he said, why do you delay as though the whole business was in your power? 
I ask for death with arms in my hands. Then the slave assented and gave him a harmless drug to drink. When Domitus fell asleep after drinking this, the slave went to his son and said, Give orders for my being kept in custody until you learn from the result whether I have given your father poison or no. Domitius lived, and Caesar saved his life, but his slave had saved it before. Chapter 25 During the Civil War, a slave hid his master, who had been prescribed, put on his rings and clothes, and met the soldiers who were searching for him. And after declaring that he would not stoop to entreat them not to carry out their orders, offered his neck to their swords. What a noble spirit it shows in a slave to have been willing to die for his master, at a time when few were faithful enough to wish their master to live, to be found kind when the state was cruel, faithful when it was treacherous, to be eager for the reward of fidelity, though it was death, at a time when such rich rewards were offered for treachery. Chapter 26 I will not pass over the instances which our own age affords. In the reign of Tiberius Caesar, there was a common and almost universal frenzy for informing, which was more ruinous to the citizens of Rome than the whole civil war. The talk of drunkards, the frankness of jesters, was alike reported to the government. Nothing was safe. Every opportunity of ferocious punishment was seized, and men no longer waited to hear the fate of accused persons, since it was always the same. One Paulus, of the Praetorian Guard, was at an entertainment, wearing a portrait of Tiberius Caesar engraved in relief upon a gem. It would be absurd for me to beat about the bush for some delicate way of explaining that he took up a chamber pot, an action which was at once noticed by Maro, one of the most notorious informers of the time, and the slave of the man who was about to fall into the trap, who drew the ring from the finger of his drunken master. When Merrill called the guests to witness that Paulus had dishonoured the portrait of the emperor, and was already drawing up an act of accusation, the slave showed the ring upon his own finger. Such a man no more deserves to be called a slave than Morrow deserved to be called a guest. Chapter 27 In the reign of Augustus, Men's own words were not yet able to ruin him, yet sometimes they brought them into trouble. A senator named Rufus, while at dinner, expressed a hope that Caesar would not return from a journey for which he was preparing, and added that all bulls and calves wished the same thing. Some of those present carefully noted these words. At daybreak, the slave who stood at his feet during the dinner told him what he had said in his cups and urged him to be the first to go to Caesar and denounce himself. Rufus followed this advice, met Caesar as he was going down to the forum, and swearing that he was out of his mind the day before, prayed that what he had said might fall upon his own head and that of his children. He begged Caesar to pardon him and to take him back into favor. When Caesar said that he would do so, he added, no one will believe that you have taken me back into favor unless you make me a present of something. And he asked for and obtained a sum of money so large that it would have been a gift not to be slighted even if bestowed by an unoffended prince. Caesar added, In future I will take care never to quarrel with you for my own sake. Caesar acted honorably in pardoning him and in being liberal as well as forgiving. No one can hear this anecdote without praising Caesar, but he must praise the slave first. 
You need not wait for me to tell you that the slave who did his master this service was set free. Yet his master did not do this for nothing, for Caesar had already paid him the price of the slave's liberty. Chapter 28 After so many instances, can we doubt that a master may sometimes receive a benefit from a slave? Why need the person of the giver detract from the thing which he gives? Why should not the gift add rather to the glory of the giver? All men descend from the same original stock. No one is better born than another, except in so far as his disposition is nobler and better suited for the performance of good actions. Those who display portraits of their ancestors in their halls and set up in the entrance to their houses the pedigree of their families drawn out at length, with many complicated collateral branches, are they not notorious rather than noble? The universe is the one parent for all. Whether they trace their descent from this primary source through a glorious or a mean line of ancestors, be not deceived when men who are reckoning up their genealogy, wherever an illustrious name is wanting, foist in that of a god in its place. You need despise no one, even though he bears a commonplace name and owes little to fortune. Whether your immediate ancestors were freedmen or slaves or foreigners, pluck up your spirits boldly and leap over any intervening disgraces of your pedigree. At its source, a noble origin awaits you. Why should our pride inflate us to such a degree that we think it beneath us to receive benefits from slaves and think only of their position, forgetting their good deeds? You, the slave of lust, of gluttony, of a harlot, nay, who are owned as a joint chattel by harlots, can you call anyone else a slave? Call a man a slave? Why, I pray you, whither are you being hurried by those bearers who carry your litter? Whither are these men with their smart military-looking cloaks carrying you? Is it not to the door of some doorkeeper, or to the gardens of someone who has not even a subordinate office? And then you, who regard the salute of another man's slave as a benefit, declare that you cannot receive a benefit from your own slave. What inconsistency is this? At the time when you despise and fawn upon slaves, you are haughty and violent at home, while out of doors you are meek and as much despised as you despise your slaves. For none abase themselves lower than those who unconscionably give themselves the airs, nor are any one more prepared to trample upon others than those who have learned how to offer insults by having endured them. End of section 8. Recording by Diana Vandervis. Winnipeg, Canada.